Hey everyone, Jeff here from besttechie.com and this is Techie Bytes episode 63. Today I'm speaking with Kareem Lakani, professor at Harvard Business School and co-author of the new book, Competing in the Age of AI. We discuss how AI is disrupting all kinds of businesses, how companies should think about implementing AI, and the rise of the AI factory. Enjoy. I'm here with Kareem Lakani, professor at Harvard Business School and co-author of the new book, Competing in the Age of AI. And Kareem and I actually met when I uh, I was accepted into the Harvard Business Analytics Program, uh, which is a brand new program that Harvard's offering. It's actually, Kareem can talk about this more uh, better than I can, but it's a, it's a, it's a three-school uh, collaboration, the Harvard Business School, the uh, uh, the, uh, the School of um, Engineering, and also uh, the Statistics Department at Harvard University. And it's a great program that I was a part of. It's a nine-month program. And Kareem, I'm really excited to have you on to talk about AI and your new book, because it's just a fascinating read, which I, uh, I was able to get a copy myself when I uh, met up with you uh, recently in New York. And uh, so thanks for being here. Jeff, great to be here with you as well, uh, and delighted to uh, talk about the book and um, all the amazing things that are going on in the world today. Yeah. So we uh, we uh, you know we met um, when I was part of HBAP, which is what we which is what all the insiders call it. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and were you working on this book at the time? I'm just curious, like what the timeline for this book was like. Yeah, that's a great question. Look, I think, you know, um, two things. One is like, whenever you're writing a book and people ask you, how's it going? You always like say, don't ask me that question <laughs> because it's terrible. <laughs> the writing process is terrible. But in some ways, this book uh, has been uh, seven years in the making. Uh, seven years ago, Marco Ian Sidi, my co-author and also faculty member at HBS, and I started this MBA class uh, called Digital Innovation and Transformation. Uh, and, you know, the, the way we teach at HBS is by going into uh, companies and doing case studies. So every single session that we run is based on a case study. And so we started to, you know, walk around, around the world, really, to meet with companies and think about how, what the dynamics that we saw occur in the software industry uh, you know, 20 years ago, the rise of ecosystems, the rise of platforms, the rise of open source software, those types of ecosystem-based companies uh, uh, and those dynamics in the software industry were now happening in all other industries as well. And as we started to write these cases, you know, a peculiar thing happened to us. Uh, around the same time, what we noticed that many of these companies were set up in a very different way. They were their operating model, as we talked about in the book, was very different from the ways in which uh, traditional companies and organizations were set up. And as we poked around that. What we saw was that the, the core of these companies was, um, you know, uh, data and analytics uh, and that uh, human decision making was being automated uh, and humans were sort of being put on the edges of the corporation versus the main activities of those companies were being done by analytics and algorithms and data. And that was sort of the insights we started to see over and over again as we started to develop this course. And then really it got accelerated when I helped sort of 
uh, co-found this Harvard Business Analytics program, where we, for the first time, started to work with our computer science department at Harvard and the stats department at Harvard and did even more cases. And then it became apparent that both the operating models of companies and the business models of the companies were changing radically. So in many ways, the the, the book is seven years old and uh, seven years in the making, but the, the tight um, writing period was about 18 months ago. So right when you saw me as an instructor and uh, as a director of the program, we were sort of also, uh, you know, the course that you that I taught, the digital strategy and innovation, in many ways, is the foundation to the the thinking we did in the book. Uh, and so, you know, it's a kind of kind of like a dance where we're creating course materials, we're creating cases, and that's also feeding our own insights uh, about uh, about the book as well. Nice. So, yeah, I I I, I think the book, and we're going to talk more about this in a second, is really great. I, it really gets to the heart of how AI is transforming, like you said, industries, even industries that aren't, you know, every company today has to be a computer company, right? Uh, a, exactly. a tech company, right? Every company exactly. has to be utilizing these types of uh, technologies in order to to succeed and actually make it into the next phase of business, or else they'll be replaced, um, which I think we'll talk more about. But, but I, I jumped the gun a little bit, and I didn't get to ask my favorite question or uh, which is usually the first question asked, which is who you are and what you do. And we obviously you're a professor at, at Harvard Business School. But what is that like? Yeah. What what is? I always I'm curious. What does a professor do on a day to day basis besides teach classes? You know, we <laughs> smoke cigars, drink whiskey, <laughs> have leather chairs. <laughs> no, far from it. I wish. Uh, so um, look, there are sort of uh, three major functions we have as faculty. Um, you know, one is, of course, a teaching function. Uh, and uh, at HBS, that's paramount. You know, we live and die by the case method. We really push hard on, uh, on making sure that we have teaching excellence uh, in everything that we do. Uh, so teaching takes up, uh, you know, a substantial portion of our time. The second bit is research. So research comes in two flavors. One is sort of the research you do around the pedagogy, around the, the case materials. So we, here we'll go and spend time with companies and write up cases and so forth. But then there's also academic research uh, that we are writing sort of nerdy articles for scholarly journals, you know, things like management science and organization science and so forth. And these are, you know, arcane journals that we write for and it's all peer reviewed. Um, but this is a foundational way for us to build knowledge. So. Our work is to write these papers, do research, write these papers, and then also apply them to the real world by doing these cases. Uh, in my instance, I do all my research through my lab, the Laboratory for Innovation Science at Harvard, where we work with organizations uh, and companies to do our core research around uh, innovation and crowdsourcing uh, and the production of knowledge. Uh, and use that as a model to then also learn about the ways in which uh, the world is changing. So I do a, a ton of research with, with my lab. We have about 20 people in, in the lab. Uh, we run field experiments with a, with a range of, uh, of organizations like NASA, like Top Coder, uh, like Harvard Medical School. Um, and we use that to sort of get a fundamental insights about the, the ways in which innovation works. And, you know, uh, I study innovation as my core, uh, core aspect of my, of my, of my research. The third element of our work is actually, uh, you know, what 
you know, is sort of external work, you know, so like I serve on boards of Mozilla Corporation, several AI-based startups, and that, you know, keeps it real for us. Like we then face real issues of companies out of the marketplace, you know, trying to make a difference, both at an early stage, like some startups that I work with, to, you know, a well-established, mature organization like Mozilla. And so that also sort of, uh, uh, you know, brings the, the world of business close to us. Uh, and, um, and we try to balance amongst all those three types of activities. You know, about 10% of our time is dedicated to these kinds of external activities. About, you know, 40% uh, of our time 50% of our time is dedicated to the research activities, and then the balance is left um, for uh, for teaching as well. Gotcha. That That's super interesting. I think one of the things that I want to talk a little bit more about is these the Harvard business case studies, which are you guys are famous for. Uh, you know, not just Harvard uses these uh, to teach, but other schools around the country also use them. I'm curious, how, how, how do these case studies come to be in the first place? Is it like, do you guys see something and you're like, we should check this out? Or is it like, you know, or do companies approach you or how, how does it work? Yeah, look, one of the great privileges of academia is that we get an intellectual hunting license. Uh, <laughs> and so, so we can go out and go wherever our curiosity uh, peaks us, we go out there and figure things out. Um, and so, so, so most of the case studies are initiated by us. Uh, you know, I'll see, I'll hear about an interesting company or I'll come across them in my research and then I'll approach them. And it can be because I've met them already. So I can just say, Hey, let's do a case. I might see them in the exec head classroom and might want to talk to them afterwards, for example. Um, or I do cold calls too. Like, you know, um, there's a one case study that you encountered Havas, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I saw the CEO, then CEO of Havas, David Jones, uh, talk in a, uh, uh, BBC program. I was very fascinated by what they were doing. So I, you know, tried to call him, couldn't get through. So then I FedExed him, you know, snail mailed him a package uh, and a letter. And then, you know, three weeks later, I was on the phone and we're talking about doing a case study. So, so in all these cases, we initiate the contact most of the times. Um, and sometimes companies will come to us and then we'll, you know, we want to be sure that we can, um, uh, that there's a, there's a pedagogical purpose, of course, in doing the case study. Uh, and then we'll go visit the companies, talk to the executives, and write up the cases. The cases that we do, you know, are done in cooperation with the companies, right? So the cases, as you saw, are a weird document, right? There's no resolution in the case. A case right. poses a business problem, and the idea is that you get the the reader familiar with the business problem. You are learning vicariously through them. Uh, but then the real learning actually happens in the classroom, whether that be virtual, which is what you experience, or uh, physical, which is no longer the case right now. Everybody at HBS, right, HBS is doing <laughs> is doing virtual <laughs> classrooms. We've taught them all how to do case method on Zoom. Um, but um, but the point being that that the learning actually happens in the classroom in dialogue with the faculty, uh, and so the cases are left with open questions and then we come to resolution and the lessons in the classroom. But the cases need to actually get approved by the company. So no cases get uh, get written if they're done in cooperation with the company without their approval because we're not in it as a witch hunt or like a journalism. This is really pedagogical to be able for us to teach certain concepts, certain approaches to running a business uh, with, uh, with students and then we need companies to cooperate with us to be able to pull this off. 
Right. And the best part about the case is, is that after the class kind of uh, dives in on it, has the whole discussion and everyone's exchanging ideas, is that you then get to present what the company actually did. Or, yes. or And yes. sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And then it, you, exactly. you have further, further discussions about why and why not. Exactly. Or sometimes we can even get the protagonist to come in and talk about it as well, uh, exactly. which is quite, quite cool as well. Yeah. Definitely. So let's jump back to AI. Um, yeah. In the book, I, I noticed, especially early on, there, there you have a uh, an explanation between something called strong AI and weak AI. W what exactly, yes. what does that mean? Yeah, I think this is very important. So I think when people think about AI, the immediate um, picture in their minds is like Star Wars or Star Trek, you know, mm -hmm. where you have almost sentient artificial beings that can answer any question, do amazing calculations. And, and do you know and are you know almost human-like uh, that's known as, as as strong AI where you know the, the computer there's no distinction between the computer and the human being I think that's very far off uh, weak AI what we define is as computer algorithms dedicated to doing one specific task that a particular human might have been doing previously and so these weak AI algorithms are very specific like for example you know when you uh, get a ride on Uber, there's a weak AI algorithm that is doing the matching, the optimal matching between you and the, and the driver around you. When Amazon makes a book recommendation to you, that's a weak AI algorithm that that has set, set aside up and actually um, you know gives you a recommendation based on your prior buying history, based on your commenting history, and other information that they have. When Facebook says, this photo might have this person in your stream, that's again, weak AI that is doing facial recognition amongst your friends. So these are all examples of weak AI where the algorithm is not superhuman. It's superhuman in one narrow particular task. And what we're seeing though is that companies are deploying multitudes of these weak AI algorithms to look superhuman, but each algorithm itself is very specific and in many ways very fragile. You can't take the algorithm that does facial recognition and then move it over to do voice recognition, right? That's not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. You will need a separate voice recognition algorithm. And so that's what we mean by weak AI. Weak AI are, are algorithms designed to do a specific task. Uh, and oftentimes they will do that task almost better than, than humans. Uh, but that's but they're very limited and constrained and brittle in that in that sense. And the best companies are taking amalgams of these algorithms and then creating lots of services uh, for their for their for their customers. So weak AI is essentially where it's at right now. That like that's those are th those specialized algorithms, if you will, that these companies have developed to do and uh, and identify you know friend recommendations or Netflix recommendations or whatever. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's where that's yeah, where and, that's where companies should be focusing more uh, than 100 percent, one hundred percent. I mean, I think for the vast majority of the economy, right, changing your core operating model to have weak AI at the core is actually very achievable and will deliver results. Right? Uh, don't don't get caught enamored with like I'm going to wait till you know you know data from Star Trek shows up, right? Uh, no, you can now implement for a range of operations issues, customer defection, customer fraud, 
you know, uh, you know, um, uh, predicting what kind of fashions might be selling in your in your organization, um, your management of your warehouses, you name it. Weak AI algorithms are ready to go if you have the right set of data coming in. So one of the things uh, that you mentioned when when we got together uh, somewhat recently, when uh, when you were talking about your book at an event, um, was how I believe one of the hotel companies, maybe it was Marriott or or, or one of them, had bought a had bought that uh, building in Union Square, that hotel in Union Square, um, nice. instead of investing in that two hundred fifty million dollars or whatever it was. In, in in developing new AI technologies to enhance the business, um, yes. these changes, these types of uh, investments, you know, don't seem very wise according to what you're saying. Yeah, look, I mean, look, look I think every company, you know, my sense is the following: like, like Marriott, I mean, right now, at least in today's world, all hotels are in trouble, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, given 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 what's happening with the COVID virus. Um, but you know, in in more normal times, you imagine that you have a company like Marriott, which is provides hotels, right? Provide hotel rooms for for for, uh, for, uh, for visitors, and they're set up to run large establishments, large hotels, um, and they're faced with a competitor either like a uh, uh, like a Airbnb. Um, you know, or even Booking.com as an advisor, where Airbnb has said, we don't need to run hotels. We just need to make the experience of somebody getting a room super easy. Uh, and we can get hotel, we can get rooms from around the world. Um, and so that model is all about technology investments, right? You need to have lots of data, ubiquity of your technology, and algorithms that can predict, you know, who, what will Jeff like when he goes, you know, to to Singapore, uh, and uh, and being able to serve up for you the right types of matches. Those are software and technology and data investments. Uh, Airbnb and Booking.com don't have to worry about running the hotel. Marriott now is faced with these competitors. They face both Hilton, but they also face these guys as competitors. And then there's a question of like, where will you make, where will you allocate resources, right? Part of the fundamental task and strategy is allocation of resources and making choices. And when when I saw, you know, in early, uh, late fall last year, that they were actually spending, it was fanfare, like $500 million on this amazing property in, in, in New York. I was like, that's $500 million not going to their tech center. That's $500 million not going to their data infrastructure. That's $500 million not going into, you know, their, um, their, uh, uh, their AI strategy. And because that has to be done. And so I think, I think many companies are going to be facing these choices, and then that those decisions will tell us what they're what they're prioritizing or not. Right, and I I think one of the, you know I think that's true, and I one of the things I'm wondering, based on your uh, experience and having you know exa uh, examined and worked with many companies over the years, is that do these companies that need to change that need to make these investments in AI, do they they they're sitting on the data in many cases, they just don't have access to it right or they don't have a way to kind of bring it all together to make it uh to make to make it work yeah so look i think i think the issue is that my, most companies are siloed in their data right each department has its own d data silo right and that there's mm -hmm. no data integration across so even at, at hotel companies right the there are silos of you know reservations from room service to entertainment right to the points program 
right? There's all these all siloed data, and then even by property as well, or or owners by it as, as well. And so, so there's no holistic view of how we have a single view of all the data that exists inside of our companies. They have the data. If you think about it, you know, Marriott knows. You know, my credit card numbers knows know where I live, knows my hotel preferences, knows the cities I go to, know, knows how long I stay in those hotels, knows what I order for rooms. They have the data, right? Mm-hmm. But it's all scattered in the shelves in different places. And, you know, they haven't done the investments yet or they, they're doing these investments, but it takes them a while to reorganize around data being the core of a business, not the hotel being the core of the business. Right. Once you say the data is the core of the business, you will have a very different view of the architecture of your organization versus thinking that, you know, I have a room service department, I have a laundry department, I have a reservations department, I have a catering department, and so on and so forth. Do you have any uh, specific examples of things like where, how Marriott could utilize this data in a way that, they could, that, that would allow them to better compete with like an Airbnb like you, like you were talking about? Yeah, look, I mean, look, I think I think in many ways now it may be even be too late in, in, in terms of this. Right. So, like, for example, um, when when Airbnb was first launching, uh, I remember talking to CIOs of, of large hotel chains and they said, look, we can build the Airbnb. Uh, the, the system at Airbnb was not that difficult. Right. I mean, this effort, but it's not rocket science. Right. Mm-hmm. To say I'm going to have customers on one side, rooms on the other side. I'm going to do some matching. Right, and I'm going to get more, lots of data about their usage, and that data informs me about how to make better matches and so forth. That was that's that's a that's a that's a knowable task, and it's doable. The problem was that the executive teams at many of these hotel chains are still focused on saying we are about creating the hotel experience, not about thinking about the traveler experience from the time I'm searching for a room to the time I I get to a room and I, I exit. Right. So, for mm-hmm. example, if or you know, this is again, you know, now some some sort of, you know, uh, you know, imagining if they were smart, you know, not smart. But imagine they sort of seen this thing happen seven years ago. Right. You could say, well, look, if I'm searching for rooms in Paris and my my hotel rooms are booked solid. Right. Maybe I should tell Kareem to go to a Marriott curated apartment right mm-hmm. which will have you know which will have married level of amenities married points right heck we will even deliver food for you so you can you can still get the married experience and in a in an apartment and oh by the way kareem trusts marriott he's like a he stays way too many nights at the marriott chains <laughs> right <laughs> right and so so he'll be very happy with things. you see what i mean so like yes. seven years ago this was within their reach they could have cut off airbnb at their knees Right. But they were so focused on like, no, no, no. The, the guest experience starts when you walk into our physical property instead of rethinking what the guest experience means. And I think and so I think that's part of the, the realization many of them are facing is that the that the game changes to a different level of expectation and an experience. And 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 we want to be. No, no, look, they're working at this, right? Today, they have experiences. They have, I think they've done some deals with some fine properties to make this happen. But it almost seems too little too late from my point of view, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost, uh, it reminds uh, me of the Nokia case that, yeah. we, that we discussed uh, during the program 
where yeah. you know obviously everyone's familiar with Nokia and then Apple came out with the iPhone but Nokia was on top of the literally they were in the, what was it the Time magazine cover or whatever <laughs> yeah for, what, it was some magazine, magazine cover for, yeah for, for where, magazine. where Nokia yeah. was on the top of the world and essentially you know Apple came out with the iPhone a couple months later or whatever and they were they're essentially dead in the water yeah exactly and I think I think I think I think the 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 key thing there right is that what we see happen is the shift from a product-based approach to a platform-based approach. And the platform-based approach requires you to be data-centric, data-first, right, and AI-first. And I think that's the, the, the shift that, that many of these organizations are struggling with, even our business school, right? If you sort of think about us, you know, we have, we're a product-based organization. We have an MBA program. We have an exec ed program. We have an online program. We have a publishing business, right? Uh, we have alumni relations. These are all silos inside of our organization. There are, you know, nine different IT groups within HBS, right? Right. And so, data so how, how data integrated is your data over at Harvard it, Business School? It's, it's <laughs> terrible. It's terrible, right? And there's all these political fights about the data as well. So, I, I'm not saying that Marriott is like the worst case. Every organ, every incumbent organization today is faced with these same issues of silos, politics, and rearchitecture. And what we're discovering is that the consumers, the customers, whether it be B2C clients or B2B clients, want a different experience, right? And that different experience is being pressured by these new competitors, right? And they start with data first, integration first, right? And then figure out, you know, the products become applications, not the fully integrated vertical stacks uh, that they are today. Right, right. So let's also look at another thing that you introduce in the book, which is the notion of an AI factory. When I when I when when uh, during the the immersion on campus, when you were teaching uh, about teaching us about the AI factory, I thought it was really fascinating. You put this this um, this great diagram up on on the chalkboard, and it was it was really interesting to see how it all comes together. First of all, I'm hoping you can explain to everyone what it what an AI factory is. And if you have any yes. good uh, examples of them, oh, for sure, for sure. So, look, I think I think the 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 transformation that many companies are facing today uh, is one where the operating model, right? And so, when we talk about the operating model, we think about uh, three dimensions, right? Which is uh, how the company delivers value to its customers, right? The operating model is structured to deliver value to customers, and then how we think about this is that there is a uh, um, uh, how you achieve scale, how you serve more and more customers, uh, how you achieve scope, how you offer them many, many things, and then how you learn and you improve. So the operating model has to deliver scale, has to deliver scope, and has to deliver uh, uh, learning along the way. So these three things are the foundations of what the operating model does. And and what we're seeing is that in most organizations, these are today manual processes, right, where we silo ourselves up into into ways to deliver scale, so that you know our MBA program is scaled to deliver value to 2,000 residential students. Our exec ed program is scaled to you know to deliver value to 12,000 students that come to campus, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and and all of them sort of hit diminishing returns, right? Because the structures are such that you focus, you get things done. You have a whole range of sort of manual processes set up, and that's what what delivers you. Uh, early early value, but over time that value diminishes. 
When we switch to a model of data-centric AI-first organizations, the AI factory is at the core of the organization. The AI factory is set up in a way so that you can you can deliver scale at a mu- at a at a much higher level than the traditional organization. You can offer them many many different things, and you're continuously learning. And so the AI factory at its core has a, a system that can absorb a lot of data from both within your operations and outside. And there's a relentless view of data ingestion coming in from existing operations and from outside, and a ton of investments to make that that process rock, rock solid, right? I, I see lots of companies underinvest in sort of what I call the data janitorial work, right? Because it's not the sexy work. It's not right, the it's not cool the, AI stuff. I was stuff. just going to say it's, not the, yeah, fun, it's yeah. not the fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but 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 if you haven't done your, you know, your data hygiene work, well, Which, you won't be able right. to get all this magical stuff, right? As we learned in HBAP, right? I mean, it's very important yes. that the data is clean and can be read and, 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 and is accurate and, and all that stuff in order for this to work well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think the first element of the data factory is sort of your data data pipelines you've set up and how you, how you invest in that. The second a- element is the algorithm development, right? And how algorithms, again, as we just talked about, weak AI algorithms that are going to actually be able to do one specific task and do it at scale for you. Uh, and um, so, for like, for example, like, like even today, if you sort of think about this COVID um, crisis we're faced with, right? Our healthcare system is facing an exponential threat in terms of patients coming in and trying to get healthcare, right? Manual systems that we have today in healthcare aren't going to be sufficient, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the first task is screening, right? Screening right now is all manual, right? You go in and you get it swabbed and so forth. But lots of people have lots of questions and worries. And, you know, phone lines are jammed, doctors are jammed, and so forth. We need an AI solution to even help us do the screening, right? If, if you know, 10% of the exposures are going to be at risk of hospitalization, how do we do automated screening up front through chatbots and other measurements, other ways to send data so that we can actually limit the pressure on our ER departments, right? Because we're, we're, we are facing, you know, we talked about this in our in our book about this collision between an exponential, exponentially growing value creation and sort of the, the, the tapering off value creation in traditional organizations. But the same issues actually exist in the healthcare system today. And so, 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 so we need algos to be able to process this data at scale uh, and be able to deliver value for specific things. So, so a data AI factory needs, again, data ingestion, right, algorithmic development, the the great thing about algorithmic development, by the way, is that for many of the tasks that we need in our organizations, we can get many of these algorithms off the shelf. We still need data scientists and AI specialists to help us train the algorithms and get them all fine-tuned, but the majority of them are now available off the shelf through various cloud platforms right, like Microsoft source. or is open source, Microsoft, Amazon, you, you know, you, you, you name it. Right. So, so, so all of these are... Uh, are set up uh, in this way, uh, and then you need to then move into a uh, a setting where you have um, uh, uh, software development. Right, you take these uh, algorithms, and then you can then create an infrastructure to deliver the software under which these algorithms will be sitting under. And then you need an experimentation platform that will test and make sure that the predictions you're making by your algorithms are in fact accurate or not. 
right? That is the AI factory. Uh, and I think the, in the book, we talk a lot about what Netflix has built as their AI factory. If you sort of think about your experience with Netflix from the recommendations it makes to 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 the movies you watch, to the, uh, the, the, the tiles it shows you in terms of the next movie, so on. So everything at Netflix. Right. Everything is, is completely personalized to you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Even, With, even the you know, thumbnail, like you mentioned that, that, that they show exactly. you. Yeah. Is personal, and even like, even like, if they know that you know Jeff likes uh, uh, rom com and Kareem <laughs> uh, Kareem likes uh, uh, action, right? Uh, you know, the, the, those two things uh, for the same movie, they'll show us different images, right? Exactly. Right. But but this, but, but it's not some human curator saying, "Hmm, Jeff <laughs> likes rom com." Uh, let me rom com, rom com, rom. Or maybe there's like bromance com. I don't know. I was, I was thinking you were going with bromance <laughs> comedy. That's cool with me. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, so there's no like persons in this way saying Jeff likes rom com and Kareem likes action. Right. It's like Kyle no, no. It's algorithm White Castle. The, exactly. And you know, so 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 for, even for the same movie, it will show you different images to 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 meet your preferences. Right, that's all automated, and so that's what the AI factory does at scale, right? And the same thing, like you know, we, we use the example in the book of Ant Financial, the 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 company out of China that serves 1.2 billion customers. That's so 10, insane. 000, to me. With 10,000 employees, <laughs> yeah, right? with 10,000 employees, and there again, they are set up in a way to really uh, to really go hard on um, on full automation. Right? They have this system where if you're setting up a new account with them, it takes you three minutes to do the application online, uh, one second uh, for their approval, and zero human intervention. Right? right. And the approvals, yeah, the approval is done based on the algorithms that they have in place. Exactly. It's not a person sitting there saying, should, should I give Jeff a loan or not? Right? <laughs> and so right. Again, that's, that's the AI factory uh, that we think is, is sort of becoming essential to most organizations. And the thing to note though, right, as we're talking about this, is like the AI factory at Netflix, an entertainment company, is exactly the same as the AI factory at Ant Financial, a bank, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, the setup you know, is the, the same. Dog, the setup is, the, the components, the setup is the same. The, of course, the algorithm, the, date, the data are different and so forth, but just think about this, right? Like a McDonald's hamburger factory is very different from the General Motors or the Ferrari car factory, right? Two mm-hmm. distinctive things, right? How you make hamburgers very different from how you make uh, make cars. But the AI factory at McDonald's and the AI factory at General Motors is exactly the same, right? Because the the, the processes, the systems, the capabilities you need to do are exactly the same. And that's like a huge aha for us to say that that's going to be a key factor that companies that know how to build these AI factories scale them and deploy them across the entire operating model are the ones that are going to be successful going in the future. Do you think that the factor that, that, this, that the, the, the components and the setup is essentially the same um, for these AI factories makes it more democratized or, do you, or, or, is it, or does it not really, won't really impact whether so, companies can adopt it or not? No, I think, great question. I, th- I, think, so I think what it tells me is that there's two things. One, the data is what matters. Right, because yes. it's the data, and your ability to get data uh, and and extract value from that data is going to be the differentiating factor for you. Uh, not so much the fancy AI algorithms you have, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So I think 
think I think I think that's it. And then it's really, you know, from my sense, a leadership question. Uh, you know, can engineering leaders and business leaders work together to see the potential of this across the enterprise, right? And it's all about your ability to scale the AI factory across the enterprise. So I think it's data and your ability to scale, which is going to make a difference in the in the in the in the in the short run coming ahead for us. Gotcha. I think one executive who got it right, maybe before any of us, was Jeff Bezos, who uh, in, in, in the book, in, in your book in uh, 2002, this is 2002, Jeff Bezos wrote a memo, yeah. which you share, and he introduces the ma a mandate to the company, to Amazon. He says, yeah. every service must be able to be used by external developers. And to me, that just seemed well ahead of its time. Um, do you attribute like is this something you attribute uh, to the company's success today and the fact that they've they've essentially built you know AWS wasn't really a thing back in two thousand two yeah. I don't think it existed uh, no. yet and 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 the fact that that he made this mandate that all of their services and uh, tools must be able to be also used by outside developers uh, just seems like a very bold thing to say and basically he also said it's like if you don't do it you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a nice day at the end. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. Look, I think so. I think I think the thing. Let's abstract from Amazon's lesson. So what Amazon realized is that the way they had built their systems were not going to allow them to scale to their ambitions. Okay, so they said, okay, what does that mean? What that, that meant is that that they had basically built a silo-based organization, and they had to move to a platform-based organization where everybody was going to interface both internal people and outside and external people through common interfaces and so you know the the nerdy term of service oriented architecture soas uh, from way back when that mm -hmm. realization allowed them to really change the trajectory of amazon right because in, in 2002 they were still like a fancy bookseller right yeah right? they were just they were, they were still selling books and other other things but it was like you know they just had more efficiencies they weren't a platform yet, but what they realized in their ambition to become a platform-based company, they had to fundamentally re-architect the entire IT system. But by the way, it also meant they had to re-architect the organization as well. So what we talk about in the book is that, the, that if you're going to move to an AI factory at your core, this will mean a re-architecture of your technology, which we think is actually the easy part. It's really the re-architecture of your organization and the mirroring of the organization to the technology, that's going to be the key, key component here. And I think that's exactly why, you know, we attribute why Nokia was not able to make this change, because they didn't see the emergence of this platform-like thinking in the technology to take hold, right? They still were focused as, as product silo-based organizations. But then also, the, the, the technology also has to evolve as well. So this architectural change is, is super critical. And I think what we know from about Amazon is that, by the way, you know, like, I think most organizations think, okay, I've got an IT system, it's one and done, and it'll keep going, and I'll keep patching it. You know, Amazon has rewritten this code three times. Three times, from scratch, right, as they have done their transformation. Why? Because they realized that it took, it took us this this far, and now we, we're having, thinking, rethinking other things, we're going to re rewrite the damn thing all over again. So, so, so this, this memo was really by Bezos was really is a when people read the memo in the book they'll see it's a super nerdy memo right but it's yeah. really an org, it's a org transformation memo it's not a it's not a technical memo it's like hey guys 
we're going to be working differently. We'll be talking differently, right? And interacting very differently. So let's get our act together and we're going to use technology to get us there, but it's really an org transformation memo. How, how important do you think that is? Uh, I mean, I, I know you kind of alluded to it before, but uh, in terms of leadership having to take charge in the, in the situation like this, where, where, where firms have to evolve to the, you know, to the next phase of business, if you will, uh, which is yeah. going to be more AI uh, factory model based. Um, yeah, look, I think I think this is this is all about top down. This is because it's not just the operating model that is going to change, but also the business model, how a company creates and captures value. And so, uh, and so, 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 you know, we can't have, uh, you know, sort of the fast company change agents driving this. This has to be the C-suite, right? We need the change agents to to make it a bit to make it possible. But the edict has to be board level and uh, C-suite level, right? They have yeah. to see this change and fund it support it and drive the transformation like again jeff bezos as ceo writing a super nerdy memo it tells you the understands the technology and its implications for the organization right he, he knew not, how, how not, important it was yeah exactly it's not being outsourced to the it department or the cto no the ceo is writing that that memo and putting it right. into 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 writing so in in the time that we have left before we get to the lightning round i want to i want to talk a little bit about privacy um which yeah. is an important factor i think when it comes to AI and as businesses move towards implementing these AI factory models, uh, how yeah. how concerned should the average consumer be, if at all, uh, about you know like should we should we be worried about the data that's being ingested or uh, into their into their uh, into their system or uh, is this just the way it's going to be? Yeah, great question. Look, I think I think we're. For both companies and citizens, we are approaching a new uh, t territory that none of us know the rules of yet. You know, in the book, we talk about how more data, you know, drives better algorithms, better algorithms drive better services, better services drive more usage, which gives you more data. And we have this virtuous cycle. Right. But it's not clear yet to both companies and or citizens what is the value of data? Do we want more perishable data? Do we should be getting rid of our data, right? So we're actually have started at our lab with Marco uh, and our doctoral students um, a real program on trying to ascertain the value of data, right? And depending upon its uh, its characteristics, when would you want lots of it? When is it useless? When is it useful? How long is the shelf life of data, and so on and so forth? So that's the one thing. So imagine you are a company that is just sucking up all this data, right? But the shelf life of this data is very low, but you now have all this risk that if you are somehow cyber attacked, right, and your data gets released, lots of people are gonna be mad at you. So should you be keeping all this data or not, right? And so, so, so in, a, in a very abstract level, we don't, we have not figured out yet the economics of data, and we're learning about this as we go along. Everybody's learning about this along the way. For is, me is personally, yeah. Go ahead. I was oh, going to say, ahead. is that is that a problem though? I mean, we look at like what Facebook, what, what's happened with Facebook over the past couple yes. of years, yes. where essentially we hadn't we. I mean, we still haven't figured out the value of data, right? And yes, and because of that, because of that learning along the way, we've we ran into the issues that we that we did so far. Exactly, exactly. And I think I think that's the thing. That's something like both citizens and individuals 
are figuring out what their what their value of data is. So let me give an example. One of my colleagues at Harvard Business School, Leslie John, uh, she does a lot of research on how individuals respond to uh, to data privacy questions. And what she is finding is that citizens themselves don't know how to value their very personal data. She's run these experiments in a whole range of settings with real people where, where, where people will reveal super personal data on websites that say, you know, are you bad.com? Right? <laughs> literally, like literally, if this website says are you bad.com, they will just reveal a ton of data, right? If you have a more official looking website, they will not re- reveal any data at all. And you go, wow, like <laughs> how, how you are, how, how are people valuing their privacy and their data is not clear. And Mozilla, you know, we, you know, we make the Firefox browser. We've always been emphasizing, you know, like data privacy. But, you know, we're in a war of attrition because, you know, other browsers that use all this data are winning, right? And, and yeah. the, the privacy message did not, did not hold water until very recently. So I think, I think individuals themselves are learning about this. Even myself personally, look, I'm all into all my Google services. Google knows everything I do. I get tremendous value from it. Now, am I yeah. worried about the fact that Google knows everything about it? Yeah, but am I going to give this up? Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, and so, it's no, a tough call. It's a really tough call. And so I think part of this is sort of this realization that all of us are facing that the, the data, our data are useful, but do we have the right governance? Do we have the right controls? Do the companies get it as well? Right, and I think that's the journey we're all. So I think we're in super early days of this, and both from a from a research point of view, but from a managerial and executive practice point of view, from a company point practice point of view, these things are going to be found out, and there'll be a ton of mistakes along the way. Um, you know, from the breaches at Target to the disasters at Facebook uh, and so on, there will be a ton of lessons that we will all need to to learn from and figure out. Um, and to see what, you know, what we want. And what I expect also, which we're sort of seeing already, right, is that some companies will differentiate on privacy, right? So, so Apple's already doing that. Apple says, we don't touch your data. Right, duck, duck, go, right. search engine. Exactly, exactly. And so, so I think, I think some, some, some companies will differentiate on privacy and others will say, no, the data that you give us is actually what enables us to give you tremendous services. And we have adequate controls in the back end to limit the access to this data or we get rid of the data and so on and so forth. As time goes forward, I think we're, we're still going to, we're still going to learn a lot about this as, as time goes on. Definitely. I think that I think that's, I think that's pretty much right on. I, I'm just nervous that there will be another, uh, you know, set of Facebook type issues, maybe yeah. not at Facebook, but at a different company. And, well, and then, well, you know, well, yeah, it kind of detracts from the whole, yeah, the, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And the problem is that, look, look, how many times has the U.S. government's, you know, uh, data sources have been hacked? Over right. and over and over. So, like, most of our, you know, personnel and government, their data has already been been hacked several times over by many state actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, true. we're already living in this world now. <laughs> government employees, our military personnel, our, 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 our federal ser- civil servants, Right, our politicians, all their data has been hacked many times over. <laughs> True. 
It's true. So, 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 and and there are no consequences to both the systems developers or the ones that go hack this data either, right? right. And that's At, again, that's exactly. I mean, we so were talking, we were talking on Slack about that Clearview AI company, right? That yes. literally yes. scraped Facebook's data without their permission, and exactly. if Facebook doesn't. If Facebook says, all right, we're shutting you down, but they already have the data, well, are they going to get that data back? You know, the you stuff go. that they already there, scraped? Exactly. Or... <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's difficult. But um, I, 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 like, like you said, I think we'll, we'll have to kind of continue on this journey and, and see where it leads us. Uh, hopefully, you know, people start figuring some stuff out. I'm curious about that research that you're conducting. I'd love to be uh, kept in the loop on that. But um, that sounds yeah, yeah, really that's... interesting. Yeah, that's uh, but be yeah, so yeah, so Kareem, you made it through the hardest part of this podcast, which is what we just did. <laughs> so now it's time for the lightning round. Which, uh, when you're ready, when you're ready to go, let me know and we'll get started. I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> All right, here we go. Would you rather be able to read minds or teleport? Ooh, um, oh my goodness! Uh, I'll go reading minds. All right. What word uh, do you always misspell? Delicious. Delicious. For me, it used to be entrepreneur. I had the yeah. most difficult time spelling that, but uh, I finally got it, I think. <laughs> Would spell you rather... Now. Spell yeah. Now. Spell now. Right now? I'd have to type yes. it to spell it. <laughs> uh and I'm not the one in the lightning round. You are. Would you <laughs> Would you rather live a week in the future or relive a week in the past? Oh, future. Book or ebook? Ebook. Last one. Would you ever go skydiving? When I was 20, yes, now no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have that urge. Uh, I, I don't feel it. Um, but my wife does, and you know, if she wants to go, that's that's good for her. <laughs> yeah, I was her and she's like, "Let's go skydiving." I'm like, uh, "No, I go." But I was your age. I'd, I'd love to go skydiving, but I'm not. <laughs> well, uh, well, I guess we can agree on that then. Together, no skydiving for us. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, well, Kareem, it's been great having you on. Uh, if you haven't yet checked out the book "Competing in the Age of AI," you definitely should. It's a great book, great read, uh, especially for the future of. You know, if you're if you're in business, it's just a must read, in my opinion. Um, Kareem, if anyone wants to get in touch with you uh, after listening, what's the best way for them to do that? Absolutely, my my Twitter handle is at K L A K A N I, and I'm also on LinkedIn as well, uh, Professor K L. Uh, so just uh, reach out, um, and uh, happy to chat. Nice, and, and we'll make sure to include links to those as well. Yeah. Uh, but thanks again, Kareem. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too, Jeff. Take care. Uh, fun talking to you again. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash besttechie and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.